Good evening. Good evening and welcome. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and on behalf of the students, the staff, and the faculty of the school, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the fourth in our Jepson Forum, fourth event in our Jepson Forum series uh, this year. I'm also pleased to welcome Roosevelt Institute Director of Climate Policy, Rihanna Gunwright, for a discussion on climate change. It's a fitting subject for this year's forum series, which focuses on failures in leadership and followership. Tonight, we're asking not only what has gone wrong with our climate policy, but also what steps we can take to mitigate climate change and ensure that we don't make the same mistakes in the future. More than 4,000 miles away, global leaders are gathered for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Davos, Switzerland, a ski resort town that currently has very little snow. On a personal note, I will add that I recently spent four days snowed in to my hometown of Stratford, Ontario, for which all roads in and out of the city were closed from December 23rd until the 26th. Activists are demanding that gov governments and businesses join forces to protect our environment in the face of extreme weather conditions, such as I had in Stratford, Ontario, around the world. Dr. Mary Finley Brook, Professor of Geography, Environmental Studies, and Global Studies at the University of Richmond, will moderate tonight's question and answer session. Thanks to those of you who submitted questions for the session. Dr. Finley Brook has researched energy justice as a community-engaged teacher scholar with the Virginia Environmental Justice Collaborative since 2016. She serves as an academic liaison for the collaborative, connecting faculty, staff, and students across the Commonwealth with grassroots environmental initiatives. Thank you for joining us this evening, Dr. Finleybrook. Earlier today, Leadership Studies senior Miriam Gilman interviewed Ms. Gunwright for our Take 5 video series, which we post online after these events. A native of Sun Valley, Idaho, Miriam is a double major in leadership studies and healthcare studies. Her research and academic interests lie at the intersection of the environment and health. Last summer, she completed her Jepson internship with the Washington DC-based nonprofit EarthDay.org. There, she gained a firsthand understanding of the correlation between green spaces, heat, and life expectancy. This semester, she's researching the connections between the environment and health for her capstone project. Please help me welcome Miriam, who will then introduce our speaker to the podium. Hello, everyone. It is my pleasure to introduce tonight's featured speaker, Rihanna Gunwright. Ms. Gunwright is the Director of Climate Policy at the Roosevelt Institute, an American think tank which, according to its website, develops progressive ideas and bold leadership in service of restoring America's promise of opportunity for all. As Director of Climate Change, Ms. Gunwright leads the Institute's research at the intersection of climate policy, public investment, 
racial equity, and public power. She earned her Bachelor of Arts in African American Studies in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Yale University, graduating with honors in 2011. In 2013, she was named a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford. After graduating Oxford in 2015 with a Master of Philosophy in Comparative Social Policy, she interned with Michelle Obama. Later, as the policy lead for Abdul El Sayed's 2018 Democratic gubernatorial primary campaign in Michigan, she set a bold policy agenda that included state-funded access to the internet and a shift to all renewable energy by 2030. Although Abdul El Sayed did not win his bid for Michigan's Democratic candidate for governor, Ms. Gunwright gained recognition in progressive Democratic political circles after working on his campaign. The campaign of U.S. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez subsequently recruited her to join New Consensus, a think tank where she became policy director and leading architect of the Green New Deal. A reflection of her commitment to climate sustainability and social justice, the Green New Deal includes a plan for 100% renewable energy, net zero greenhouse gas emissions, sustainable jobs, affordable housing, and high quality health care. Ms. Gunwright has been involved with the Ocasio-Cortez Town Halls and the CNN Climate Town Hall. She appeared in the 2022 climate change documentary film, To the End, and was a signatory on the women-led climate campaign. She has written for The Guardian, and Time Magazine included her in its list of top women fighting to end climate change. Please welcome Rihanna Gunwright to the stage. Thank you so much, Miriam. That was so lovely. I almost want to cry. Um, thank you all so much for coming tonight. Thank you for inviting me. It's really such an honor to be here talking with you at the beginning of what I hope for all of you is like a very wonderful new year. Um, and I really want to thank you all, and especially the folks hosting this talk, for being so welcoming and gracious. Um, I am really out of practice at this. Um, this is my first, well, this is my second in-person talk since 2020, and I've been back at work, but I have a little baby. Um, thank you. I guess he's not so little, he just turned one. Um, he certainly doesn't think he's little. Um, and, I just say all that to say, like, it feels like I'm at a very vulnerable place in my life right now and doing this. I all day work and think about a little one. So to come out and see all of you and try to, like, talk about the things that I have done and want to see and where we need to go and where we have been can feel really overwhelming, honestly. Um, I just feel like somebody's struggling through the day most days, uh, including today. It was definitely including today. Um, and so to be up here with all of you looking at me, knowing that you are all very smart and capable. I do believe that truly. I'm not just saying that. Um, 
does really feel like an honor. And thank you, Miriam, for reminding me that I have done a few things in my life, despite what feels like completely forgetting all of that at this moment in time. Um, so I am here today to talk to you about sort of how we can learn about from our failure when it comes to climate policy in the U.S. Um, and that is, unfortunately for the world, but luckily for me, uh, a very fertile topic. It's a very, <laughs> lots of things to talk about. Um, and I, it actually took me a bit to figure out what to talk about because this is a road that honestly it, it, in the U.S. and across the globe has been paved by a lot of failure. Right. And we are not where we need to be. I don't think we're where anybody really wants us to be, but we are farther than we were. Um, and so I think that that is worth acknowledging. And I think I want to talk today about sort of how we can build from where we are now and why we have seen why at least I think we have seen the progress that we have seen. And so I just want to disabuse you all from the notion. I know you might be expecting me to talk like a bunch about history and policy and throw like a lot of facts and data at you, but my brain doesn't hold that stuff anymore. Um, and also I think that all of that is important, but it sometimes moves us away from what I think is the heart of the issue which means that I'm mostly going to be talking about people and emotions and experiences of how we just sort of live and exist in the world, which might seem a really a little bit strange for a discussion about policy. But I personally don't think so. And that's because we often talk about policy, about like whether it's passed or not. But the question of policy starts way, way before you hit the halls of Congress. Right. The process of policy change is so personal. It's very emotional. And it begins really with a few things. One is problems. Right. To have a policy, you have to be able to define something as a problem and not just as a problem, as a problem that is affecting the public. Right. The, a community writ large, and that requires to, for it to be solved some amount of public intervention, meaning intervention from government, something that cannot be done fully by the private sector. And right, that is a real process. And one of the things that happened with climate change is it actually took a very long time for us to decide it was a problem. A, a problem that it was happening, that it was attributable to human causes and that we should do anything about it or that it required any sort of public intervention beyond what companies themselves would do or were willing to do, right? And so that is a whole issue unto itself. Policy also requires power, right? You need the power to pass a policy. You need the power to decide something is a problem, right? And you also need the power to shape how you want that problem to be solved. Because the other part of policymaking that we don't talk about enough is sort of philosophies, right? A problem, any problem that you have, even when you teach kids to tie their shoes, you can tell where my brain's at. Um, 
You can teach a kid to tie their shoes multiple ways, right? There are multiple ways to solve any problem. So part of the policymaking skirmish is you want people to solve problems in the ways that often you think is best to solve problems, but also a way that is supported by data as a good way to solve a problem, right? And all of these things are way more open to contestation than we actually acknowledge, right? Like all of that actually takes changes in culture, right? In people's mindsets. It requires people seeing themselves in something often, in an issue, in a movement, in a protest, in any number of things before things can happen, before policy change can happen. So that's partially why I'm talking to you. Actually, that's a lot of the reason why I'm going to be talking to you about people and emotions, because I think a lot of the failure with U.S. climate policy came really down to the fact that we made the mistake for a really long time about talking about the climate crisis, which is something that is very social, very political, very and for many people, very emotional and personal as something that was just technical and scientific, a matter of greenhouse gas emissions, carbon footprints, right? How many of you were around during the inconvenient truth era? How many of you started thinking about climate because of the inconvenient truth? Right? It wasn't something that talked about we weren't talking as I'll, and I'll talk more about this, about the breadth of climate. And the truth is that like, if you don't already have a story about how the climate crisis has affected your life, within five years, you will. You will, right? And for me, my story on its face doesn't seem to be about climate change, right? It's I have a story that's very informed by environmental injustice. I grew up, mom's a single mom. I grew up with her and my grandmother in the house that she grew up in on the south side of Chicago. When they moved in, it was a majority white neighborhood. White flight happened. Those folks left. It became a majority black neighborhood. When she grew up, she has all of these like idyllic stories oh, the family dog got out and ran down the street and all the kids came and my mom used to take hand out hot dogs to all the neighborhood kids and we played stickball in the lot. I'm making a sound, it's very lovely, truly. Um, it's very leave it to beaver, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, but that neighborhood didn't exist like that when I grew up there. There was still a really strong community in terms of people and neighbors who still live there, but I'm, this is going to sound harsh, but when the white people left, so did the public investment. It was just sucked out. And so I grew up in what was like a husk of the community that she grew up in. And in part of that time, a highway was built too, not too far. And so that meant that the community that I grew up in, the whole neighborhood was one of the, is one of the most polluted in the city of Chicago. I didn't live in the most polluted part, but definitely drove through there every Sunday to go to church. And long story short, I got asthma as a kid. Um, and asthma was so prevalent in my community that it wasn't until my 20s, I didn't realize it wasn't a childhood disease that you just got and like 
hopefully grew out of. And people are like, what does that have to do with climate change? Well, it's like two things. One is that my neighborhood was that polluted because of histories of redlining and residential segregation. And the flip side of that is that that makes neighborhoods like the one I grew up in much easier for polluting facilities or polluting infrastructure to be built there. It's more likely to be zoned commercial. It's cheaper to put things there. And also residents like my family, they don't have a ton of political capital, right? My family was in a better position because my mom went to college, right? But most of our neighbors didn't. They came to us to do resumes to help them get jobs, right? And so that means that we're sort of rife. And the reason that's connected to climate change is because when it's burning fossil fuels requires that you have people that you can poison without consequence. We have known that fossil fuels are poisonous for a long time. And when there are pockets of people like mine that are politically vulnerable through history have been treated poorly, that means that there's always a loophole for fossil fuels to sort of exploit and exist. Because if they had to be cited in some place wealthier and wider, we would probably have a lot more regulations around fossil fuels. And a real example of that is the Dakota Access Pipeline that was literally rerouted from its original pathway, which would have gone through a city that was 98% white, through indigenous land, even though it violated federal treaties. So like this is actually real. There are real consequences to the inequities in our built environment and our system that actually facilitate climate change, that help allow climate change to happen. Um, and then on the flip side is that like I was born before we were so near some of these tipping points, which means that the hotter it gets, the more sort of essentially smogged is cooked and the, and the harder it gets to breathe. So if I had been born 10, 15 years later in that same neighborhood, I was already out every spring because I was sick. I might have had more days out. What would that would have meant for school? What would that have meant for my mother and her ability to work? Right. I don't know if I would have gone to Yale. Right. And that's what I mean. Like climate change is personal. Right. Even if you're not directly affected yet. The dynamics, the things that are happening do, in fact, like really shape our world and the ways that we exist. Now, that doesn't mean right. There's that's no shade to science. Science is incredibly important. Right. Climate scientists are so responsible for telling us what we're coming to, what we're facing, what that's going to look like. But the fact is that when you frame an issue like climate change, primarily around science or around technical measures, it shrinks an issue that should be big, big, big into something small, small, small. Right? It shrinks something that should be motivating people to large action that should be the center of many conversations about all kinds of intersecting things, our economy, right, our um, political systems, how we're using our built environment into something that like 
some scientists will deal with someday. Somebody technical is going to come by and figure it out, and you can just sort of wait, or it's off in the distance somewhere, right? And that is a mistake. It's a mistake because climate is, like I've said, it's about more than science, but that is largely because emissions don't actually come from nowhere, right? When you talk about just greenhouse gas emissions, if I tell you greenhouse gas emissions, where do y'all think it comes from? Just shout it out. Cars. <laughs> right, like if you just talk about it in that way, you get like one or two places that it comes from. But the fact is emissions are the result of just economic activity. They're the result of the ways that our societies are built, right? Um, that means like the way that we eat agriculturally, right? The sort of systems of corporate agriculture that we have now generate way more emissions than more sustainable forms of farming, right? The ways that we rear livestock, Similar, and it's also a big driver of things like COVID, right? This sort of collapse of space between how much space animals have, space between people and animals, right? That is a driver of, of viral disease, right? Um, the way that we travel, like you said, cars, basically anything that's not your feet or a bike generates emissions, right? And the way that our cities are built, how many people here live in a place that you could walk around? without a car. Oh, that's pretty good. How many of you don't? Right. How many of you can afford to live in urban centers that are walkable? There are a few, a few people. How many people are just gonna choose whatever housing they can get because they can afford it? A lot of people, right? Especially younger folks. And that has a big, that means something, right? We're, we build out, especially in the U.S., societies that require a huge amount of driving, right? And that drives emissions. Um, the way that we relax, I have a friend from college who wrote a whole book about how much emissions is driven by, like, leisure activities, including watching Netflix, and I was like, never speak to me again. <laughs> <laughs> You're a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, right? And that was one of the things about crypto that was so damning was like crypto takes an enormous amount of energy to just run that constantly, right? And also a lot of water. Um, and so like even the clothes we wear, this is no shade because I will put my hand up first. Who here is wearing polyester? Everybody wears polyester, right? That is a shift in how we build clothes, and polyester depends on oil, right? How many people here buy from fast fashion? I'll also raise my hand. Everybody young here, raise your hands, don't lie. <laughs> I understand. There's no judgment. I also loved a Forever 21. I mean, I still... I'm, let's not talk about it. Um... <laughs> But, like, increasingly fast fashion is a huge driver of emissions, right? And also fossil fuel companies are looking for new outlets like clothing and plastics, right, to keep oil and things alive, to use byproducts to build it out, right? And so 
all of those things. And that's not to make anybody feel guilty. We live in the systems that we live in. When I say we, I mean a very global we, not I think you did it. Right? Like you, we are all at the mercy of things that were built before we were alive. And things that as much as we would like to control, we don't. Individually, right? And so that's not, that's not any shade to anyone. But that is just to say that when we talk about reducing emissions, it's not just a technical question. You're talking about changing how people live and work. Even going to a shorter work day would reduce emissions. Four-day work week. Let's fight for that, too. Um, but, like, that, that matters. And I think we were just talking at dinner about when we were all locked up. Remember how there were all these locked up. Ooh, I'm sorry. <laughs> locked down during COVID. How much emissions went down? Do y'all remember seeing those studies? Right? And that, that's exactly what we mean, right? Emissions come from... Us. And so when you're talking about how do we tackle climate change, you're talking about people's lives, right? How many people here have heard about gas stoves in the last two weeks? Every damn body. Um, and that is because gas stoves are in the middle of a fight that is, yes, about indoor air quality and, yes, about electricity, but also in part because of fossil fuel involvement about how people want to cook, right? And what people want to cook on and what's better to cook on, and right? Like, even that decision is not small. We're looking at moving hours out in our house, and that is not, that's hard, right? And so to put it another way, there is a sociologist at uh, Columbia who talks about if our society is a body, fossil fuels are our food, right? And how many people in here have, like, gone vegetarian or vegan or paleo or Whole30 or, I don't know, pick one. I don't care. Keto, um, right? How did, did that change the way you structured your life? Totally, right? It changed what you bought, changed where you shop, you know, might change how closely you sit to a bathroom. There's a lot of <laughs> things that could happen. And that is, that's assuming you still eat food. So when you switch to renewable energy, right, that's kind of like going like, you don't eat food anymore, you eat red algae, right? Like it's, you source it differently, you generate it differently, you, right? And that's not a bad thing. It's what we need to do. And it creates a lot of opportunities, but that is just to say that, like, these changes are big changes, right? Even economically, right? I work at the intersection of economic policy and climate change. And one of the things that we talk about all the time in a, in a subsection of work called climate finance, which is just a fancy way of saying, like, what role do banks and financial institutions and our financial systems play in the climate crisis? And also, how are you financing a transition towards or away from fossil fuels? Um, and something that is really, has always struck me is that folks who really study this say that like, we could be facing a bubble far bigger than 2008, 
with fossil fuel, with the transition away from fossil fuels. Because think about it, that's tons of assets that are stranded that aren't used, right? That is, um, that's a lot of money on a lot of balance sheets, right? And what's really going to happen is if the plug gets pulled and there's not an orderly transition, governments are going to be stuck bailing out, right? That means a lot. Pensions are invested in fossil fuel companies. Right. Pensions are managed by asset managers that invest in fossil fuels and clean energy. Right. Like so much is baked into this. And also, as more and more property is becoming declared uninsurable. Right. But people still live there. So what happens when a storm hits and their insurance company says, oh, you lived in a place that because of climate risk is uninsurable? Like these are all things that happen and are very, very real. Um, And so. So the reason one of the reasons that making climate change scientific and technical um, is really problematic isn't just because it sort of shrinks down the conversation that you're having. So a bunch of people raise their hands about learning about climate change through inconvenient truth, polar bears, melting ice caps. How many of you in that same time frame heard about the intersection between like climate and finance? Far fewer, right? Or climate and the economy. Climate and environmental justice. So a few, it wasn't the same number of hands, right? We weren't having these conversations. And one of the real, real detriments and reasons that set us up for failure is because we just talked about how climate touches everything. That means that changing our dependence on fossil fuels entails a lot of conflict with a lot of very rich, very powerful actors who have a lot of access to our political system. Um, And like, there's a reason ExxonMobil knew about climate change in the 1970s, modeled it accurately with like, in terms of temperature and carbon emissions, all of that. They knew ExxonMobil is also one of the richest and most powerful corporations in the history of, in history, just period. Right. Like that is on that is just one of the actors on the other side of this fight. Right. And so when you have that kind of opposition, that's not something that can be overtaken through an insider political strategy. Right. And our political strategy in those times where we were just talking about science and technical technology. Right. um, Our political strategy matched that. It was also small. It was also backroom. It was also between elites and industry. So how many of you have heard about Waxman Markey? A few people. So the last time we tried to pass major climate legislation was in 2009, Waxman Markey bill. Um, It was a bill for carbon taxes and carbon like cap and trade, which are very technical solutions. How many people here understand cap and trade? I don't, and I study. I don't. I don't. I'm like, what? I, the money goes here, goes there. What? 
It is very technical. It was very hard for people to understand. People did not, the folks fighting for that didn't go out and like talk to movement actors. They weren't trying to get protests, right? They weren't trying to have big actions for Waxman Markey. It was in the back room. It was between elites and it failed spectacularly. Never even made it to a vote, right? And... And that is because there's just too much industry pressure to topple it, like, with nobody watching. The thing that climate change needs, and something as big as climate needs when you have all of these folks that would rather you not do this, <laughs> would rather you not take action, would rather the government not really do much, um, you need a mass movement for climate action. You need it at the center of conversations. You need movies made about it. You need TV shows made about it. You need people, you need, honestly, you need young people to care about it. The amount of things that happen in DC because somebody's grandchildren told them it is cool is terrifying. It is also a very useful political strategy. <laughs> um, right? Like, you need this everywhere, really, because that is how you build up enough pressure. And you also, along with people pushing for climate change, for climate action, talking about climate change, you also need a mass movement that is really calling into question the moral license of fossil fuel industry. It is not enough to just push for the good. You also have to fight the bad, especially when the bad has all the money, right? There's just no way to solar panel our way out of this if we're still pumping as much oil as possible out of the ground. It's just not, it's just not possible. And I think we all in our everyday lives know you can't really try one thing with one hand and go backwards with the other. I guess unless you're dancing. But this isn't a dance. <laughs> this is a fight. Um, and so, um, where was I? Right, you need, you need like a very big, big movement. And so when we just sort of left the conversation to be scientific and technical, we discouraged public action. Honestly, what happens when things are technical? You look for an expert to fix it because you assume you don't have what it takes, right? And it put a lot of us in a stance where like, even me, I was like, I don't know, somebody who has enough space in their brain to think about polar bears is gonna figure it out. I don't know. Enough rich white people will put up solar panels and we'll all be saved. I don't know, right? That is how I felt in college because I was thinking about poverty and like studying welfare, all sorts of other things, right? It just seemed like somebody else's issue, right? It also made it remote, right? I think a, a lot of that, and that's the problem with just motivating only by fear, is like the apocalypse is by its nature always a future problem. Right. Anytime you tell somebody about the apocalypse, they're like, I'm not living in it right now. And you move on. Right. And so. And with that, it also underestimated the number of Americans for whom getting by day to day is a mini apocalypse. 
right, for mil- like millions of people in this country, including myself, there's always been some sort of crisis. If you are black, there has never been a moment in this history that wasn't involved some type of crisis. Right? If you are poor, every day is a crisis. Maybe not every, close, you know, like if you have chronic health conditions and bad health care, you, are you thinking about a solar panel? No, you're not. Are you thinking about sea level rise? Probably not, right? And for us to move forward, we really needed a vision of climate change that recognized that this country is brutal in a lot of ways for a lot of people. And if we're going to ask them to care about climate change, you have to meet them where they are and explain how it fits into their daily lives. Right. And then the last thing, like I said, it just made it really easy to squash. Right. If it's an issue that is highly technical, small number of people need to deal with it. And industry, something like ExxonMobil, American Petroleum Institute, they can step on that. They can step on that and not even have a newspaper article about it. Right. And that's something that we see in our especially in our states and local contexts all the time. Um, And so I would say that, like, learning from failure, um, I would argue that what you're seeing right now with the Green New Deal, with Standing Rock, so many things over the last five years, you actually see people learning from failure, right? You see activists linking climate to all sorts of things, housing, right? You see people talking about climate and environmental justice. You see people talking about climate and emotion, climate anxiety, climate grief, Right. You see people building out the audience and the issue, which a conservative strategist once told me is the best way. If you're not winning on the terms of an issue, expand the issue. There's a reason we are now talking about gas stoves like freedom. Right. You don't have to do it that way, but there is some sense to that. Right. And I would also say that, like, you are seeing these new, well, not new, but like reinvigorated, keep it in the ground movements, people really calling out fossil fuels. That's good. Right. That is all us learning from what happened when we made it small, small, small and trying to make it big, big, big. Right. And also trying to help people from like all walks of life see themselves in a fight for climate. So it's no longer just sort of like a rich white issue. It's an issue about like what happens in the Gulf? What happens when you can't fish? What happens when you can't farm your land in the ways that that are most beneficial for that land and, and beneficial, honestly, often for farmers themselves, especially small farmers, right? You're having people talking like across so many constituencies that we did it. And that is a big reason why we have the investment or the Inflation Reduction Act, while we have had some climate policy passed because it just became too big to ignore. And also it was linked to more young people coming out to vote, right? It also became an issue that politicians need to engage with to sort of that could decide whether they win or lose an election. And those are all good things. And I'm just here to say, like, those are directions we should keep pushing in. I know there's a lot, especially with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a big push, like, let's just focus on reducing emissions. Let's just talk about climate. There is no such thing as just talking about emissions. It is not 
possible. And so even if it feels a little bit more inconvenient now, it is still so incredibly important to keep pushing in this direction because when you are facing people as powerful as we're facing, the way you survive is to get big. Too big to step on. Too big to crush silently, right? Too big to ignore. And I just think, especially for all the young people in the room, so much of that has to do with young people and youth activism. And for everyone else in the room, it also has come because, like, you all care about it, too, or are learning about it. And so I just want to encourage everyone to, like, keep moving in that direction, keep caring, even if it's in a small way, even if it's not the central issue in your life, because that is what we need to sort of stop failing as much as we were failing. We'll still fail a little bit. It's inevitable. Everybody fails. But we can also keep progressing. And that is worth so, so much, especially to little people like my little man. So thank you. fantastic is this on can you hear me that was absolutely fantastic thank you so much thank you all for coming i am so impressed by this audience uh, i'm definitely recognizing students and community members but seeing this many people come to hear this topic is really important and you did an amazing job that was fantastic <laughs> so since we're on a college campus i'm going to do a couple of questions that were generated prior that people submitted as they signed up for the event we're going to do some that were generated by classes we are going to open it out to you i think we have plenty of time to oh, do good. that. Um, so do think about what your question will be, but we will start from some that were generated um, as people registered. And since we're on a college campus, I'd love to start there. Um, what kind of policies, and I know you were talking a lot about actions, and so that's fantastic if you want to go in that direction as well, are needed to spur U.S. institutions of higher education to meaningfully respond to climate change. And we had a question from a student that came in and said, what can college students do to help you? But I would love to extend it out from that because you talked about power and I yeah. believe in youth power. I believe in student power very strongly, but I also know that we need to bring in an administration. We need to bring in faculty. We need to bring in staff. So what can higher education do? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. So higher education is Institutions of higher education are really important because they're often anchor civic institutions in any given region. And so that means they have a lot of sway when it comes to often like what laws are being passed locally, what policies are useful. And they can also play a really interesting and important role when it comes to like the electric grid and um, fostering like distributed energy, sort of more resilient um, electric grids locally. Um, and so, I mean, a lot of, so I would say 
The policies that can help is, I mean, from the federal level, more incentives squarely targeted either at higher institutions or institutions of higher education or that are available even if those institutions are not public, right? So for instance, in IRA, there's money for public institutions to um, basically create um, like community solar or their own um, energy resources that they own, renewable energy resources that they own. But at a place like this, since it's private, I don't know if that would be applicable, but widening things out like that, I think it would be really great. Um, and then I think administrators, um, particularly the heads of institutions, really in their state and local context, can play and need to play a really key role in pushing for clean energy uptake or climate policies because the voices of, of presidents of those institutions, staff, matter immensely. And then I would say that like staff and students, one thing that staff, especially professors, can do to help is that there's often a, a need for um, scholar activists, right? scholars who work with communities, particularly communities facing environmental injustice on these issues, because often you're not heard, say, like in a hearing, if you don't have data, right? And people in communities often have stories. They know what is happening, but no one has measured it for them. And it means a lot when someone comes in and says, I'm a professor at the University of Richmond. And in fact, these truck count is this and the pollution is this. And it is, in fact, taking years off their life. Like, that matters a lot. Also, students engaging both on their campus. Oh, I was going to also say divestment. Universities have huge amounts of resources that are often invested in financial markets. Divesting from fossil fuels and proactively pushing to invest in ESG funds aren't always the greatest, but pushing to invest in, like, honest ESG funds uh, funds that do sort of invest in clean energy. All of that is really important, especially when you're talking about pensions too, because when you're funding, um, using pension funding to fund fossil fuels, you're really funding things that are not in the benefit of the people who are actually putting their money, the worker capital there. So I would say all of those things with students, I think partnering with community, like pushing divestment campaigns on campus are important, but also there are community groups that are always looking for like more hands, more help, more um, investment. And I feel like college students are so, so helpful there. And the only way that we move forward on any of this is in community, like no individual is going to solve this. So linking up with groups, I think, is really important. Thank you so much. Uh, we had a question about job creation. We talked a lot about Green uh -huh. New Deal, but getting into some of the specifics, what are the opportunities? What do you see as the kind of the most exciting things that can be spurred by that? Keeping equity in mind, what policies would assure women, certainly low-income workers, communities of color, don't get left behind? Yeah. So, I mean, the things that pop up top of mind whenever you talk about sort of what jobs are created are jobs in clean energy. Um, so, I mean, that solar installers, um, that is engineers. Um, 
But there's also a big, there are a lot of jobs that are going to be created in terms and like trades. Like there's going to be an enormous number of electricians needed to run new wires and work on transmission. There's going to be a ton of construction workers needed. There's going to be a ton of contractors who know how to install things like heat pumps, right? Who know how to install electric appliances. Um, that, that matters because a lot of, even though we have a number of contractors, a lot of them are not uh, trained in those things. And so those are some of the things top of mind. But of course, job creation, um, there's also like a big move to reshore things like semiconductors here, which um, that requires like people who are highly educated in engineering often in those industries. Um, but that's to say that there's also job creation that that happens like down, I don't want to say down the pike, but downstream, right? If you have one semiconductor facility, right, that spurs a lot more in the community, right? Maybe you need a new com a company that makes small parts for that, or you need restaurants that serve those workers, right? And so there's also downstream effects that I think we aren't even fully sure what can happen. Um, but I would say those trades jobs come top of mind. And I say that, too, for your second question, which is trades jobs, a lot of the jobs that will be created, like I said, are trades jobs. And without intervention, those will be largely taken up by white men. Right. Like there's there is data showing that. And so the kind of policies that you need to make sure that they're accessible to everyone, you need child care is very, very high on the list. Right. A lot of women in particular will not be able to take up these jobs or get trained if they don't have childcare, right? So childcare is a big one. Um, workforce training that is well paid, right? A lot of these trade jobs require poorly paid apprenticeships, right? So there needs to be support for that, um, financial support so people can take them, regardless of their financial circumstances they're starting in. And the last thing I would say for that one is also, um, I don't, I wouldn't call it retraining, but helping people fill whatever skills gaps they have, say if they don't have quite the math skills, right, or quite uh, the science or literacy skills, uh, programs like adult education programs that help fill those gaps that are actually, that are effective and can be done sort of quickly. I love it. Thank you. Okay, so we had various questions from students. They were seeking advice on how to communicate effectively about climate, whether this is, you know, the holiday dinner or it can be in your classrooms, it could be in your dorms. Um, several were specifically looking for insights and how to reach entrenched populations, potentially climate deniers. Others were looking to encourage conversations with older generations or with those working in sectors where the environment has historically been given less, in, less importance. So how do we have those conversations? Yeah, well, I would say first thing is can you find a hook, right? If you're talking about to someone in business, maybe talk about climate and finance, right? There's, like we talked about, climate touches on so much. So it's really about can you find the piece that is most resonant with that person? I think that's a good place to start. I would say with 
older folks, no, no shade to anyone in here. Um, environmental stewardship, the idea of protecting clean air, clean water, uh, and climate deniers, that actually polls well on both sides of the aisle. Um, and conservatives in particular do care a lot about that. Um, so I think talking about that, I mean, I think also appealing to some of the latest reports that do show that things are not far off, right? I think a lot of times people shrug, shrug it off if they're not deniers, but maybe not thinking about, oh, that'll happen in 50 years, somebody will figure it out. Um, talking about things like food shortages, right, that are coming within the next few years and connecting that to something like inflation. If you think food prices are high now, wait till there's not enough grain, right? Um, so I think, I think that is helpful. But I would say also, when you're engaged in those conversations, make sure that you're also finding people who do care about it to sustain you, because uh, it's not worth I think you have to sustain yourself even as you're having these conversations. So make sure that you're in conversation and community with people who do care. So you have a release and, and people to talk to. And the last thing I would say is that like, if the conversation doesn't move, we all love people who don't agree with everything we agree with. And that's okay. So if you have a beloved grandpa who thinks climate is fake, have the conversation, but if it doesn't go anywhere, that's okay. You can still love your grandpa. You know, like it'll be, you can keep talking. And I also find that sometimes people shift over time just as they see you caring about it and see the movement and just like time can help a lot. So don't put a lot of pressure on that one conversation or changing that one person. Have the conversation. If it doesn't go anywhere, if you have the energy, just have it again, have it. And if not, move on and you know, the climate change is happening. It will keep shifting and keep worsening, if, especially if we're not doing more about it. And so it might just happen, right, over time. Much. So what we wanted to do is invite you all. I think we have a second microphone. So if anybody would, we would like you, please, if you can, to keep your question brief. But we would love to hear from anybody in the audience what you would like to ask. Is there a policy tipping point? That's a very good question. Um... A policy tipping point as in a time it gets bad enough, we pass a lot of policies. Yeah, or I kind of thought $100 billion a year of disaster would be. Oh, yeah. I don't. So that's interesting because, yeah, I think a lot, even when I started, we were like, it'll get so bad. People won't will be able to ignore it. The human capacity to ignore something is a lot <laughs> higher than I imagined. So I don't know if we can bank on that. I will say that what happened in the IRA and I, you know, I have, I, you know, there are places where it fell short, right? There are definitely real trade-offs and I've spoken about them in my work when it comes to like environmental justice, but it will also, if, if things go the way models predict, models are models, 
it will sort of shift the political economy some because you will see clean energy becoming a far bigger, heftier presence that won't be a counterbalance fully to fossil fuels because they have lots of entrenched power and wealth, right? So I do think that we could see some things change in terms of political economy. I will also say that like, I don't know what's gonna happen with the GOP if it keeps going in the direction that it's going. I think it'll be difficult to have a policy tipping point, right? Um, with sort of the rise of fascism because they're not really fighting about climate change, they're fighting about a lot of other stuff, right? Um, and climate is like part of something woke, but it's not really about climate. I think we all know that. But I don't know if things shift somehow in that direction and we have like a political party that becomes more reasonable around it. I think maybe I don't have much hope in that direction, but I just think policy tipping points are hard right now because there's so much in the, on the hard right that's just a no. Right? And I'm and the things that they do want are ashes climate policies, right? Um and we don't want that either. So, I don't know. I'm hoping that the IRA sets up sort of some sort of positive feedback loop and some changes in political economy and the industry players at the table that could help, but I don't think that like just disasters alone will push it off, um, will push people into action. Because we have a remarkable ability to be like, that one thing happened and it will never happen again. She's coming in. Sorry, yes. This may come under the heading of somebody else will figure it out. Um, Recently, there was a fairly dramatic breakthrough in the field of fusion reaction. Yeah. What sort of impact do you think that could have? I mean, I, I try not to be an oracle. I don't know. There's a, just, there are a lot of steps before that becomes repeatable regularly or commercially viable. So I think we absolutely should not bank on that. And that's hard because it's a very scary situation and we all watch a lot of TV where it's like one scientist figured it all out. And then, and so I think a lot, and even in DC, there's this hope that there'll be like the silver bullet that scientists will figure out something and then we'll like pull carbon out of the air all the time or whatever. And we just cannot bank on that, right? Because there are so many steps between even like um, a big finding and commercial viability, a big finding and being able to do it all the time at a price that people can pay, you know, and I don't know about the weight. I don't think there's actually waste with, with fission. There's no waste, which we have with current nuclear energy. So you won't have that problem, but, um, but I will say I wouldn't bank on it, but if, if it does work out, that would be enormously exciting and very helpful. Hi. Um, so one of the issues that I, I know is kind of going on in Virginia specifically right now is uh, it's sort of like one of these sort of uh, probably foreseeable, but one of these problems with like a lot of solar installation going in being um, not like small solar, but large scale 
which takes up a lot of land, yeah. which then creates competition around like farmland and, and right. protected land and that sort of stuff. But at the same time, it's something that we definitely need to be doing installing right. more solar. So I think my, my question is in terms of like communicating and like thinking through those issues, right? I mean, how, how do you think through kind of that, that trade-off and how do we get yeah. that balance right while still moving forward in the direction we need to go? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm actually glad you brought it up because all of this is full of trade-offs. I hope I don't walk away making you all think that like, it's all easy. It's not like there's going to be some really tough decisions. And I'm on the side of like, don't make those at the expense of people. I think one way that you deal with that is having actually really robust community participation and democratic planning at the community level so folk can weigh in on projects instead of being told this project is coming and then you have to like, your only option is to fight against it because they never spoke to you in the first place, right? So I do think that like community participation, especially when it comes to questions of land use is really, really key because a community might say, well, that is how we want to use this land, right? Like that is worth the trade-off. But right now we don't even give people the option. I know there's like, I think the IRA does have some incentives for agriculture. I think like, I forget exactly what it is. Um, I do think there are ways to make that trade-off more profitable or, and even just feasible for folks in rural communities and farmers whose land it would be on. So I know there's some thinking going on in that, but my answer to that is like, sort of, I guess, like 70s as it is, is like really actually include people in those processes um, with the hope of finding um, a workable solution. Because um, for something like that, that solution, how we sort of figure out that trade-off should not happen at the federal level, I don't think. Right? Like that is... And so many things in climate are like that. The trade-off has to be decided by the people who are going to be directly affected. Does that help at all? Okay. And one way to do that is like strengthening the NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act. A lot there's a lot of talk about that, but NEPA is one of the only vehicles that actually requires community participation. So if you actually beeped up like administrative capacity around that and like really even strengthen the statute and the, or the regulations with the statute, that would actually mean that a lot of those things will have to get federal money and go through that process anyway, that there's a real actual container and opportunity for that to happen and requirement. Uh, yeah, I was wondering, um, <clears throat> excuse me, where uh, the international community is going to look like, uh, especially for underdeveloped countries, particularly in the global south. Um, if you say like, you know, global warming is like right in front of us, where what's going to happen to those countries? If it's like, like uh, the, the, the global south and like underdeveloped right. countries, you know, they might have a harder time adapting to this to this change and transitioning to a sustainable right. future. So how how do they play into the the whole thing? Yeah. Um so I think one of the biggest things there and I'm sorry 
since having a kid, I can't seem to remember exact words, but I remember concepts. Um, so, and there was a big fight about it at COP, this last COP, COP 27. Is it ju- not Justice Fund? I forget. Um, do you remember, do you know the name? Does anyone know the name? Anyway, but essentially it's funds from developed nations that are supposed to pay a there's not a formula, but the idea is that we are more responsible for climate change and global warming, and we are supposed to pay, and those funds will be then used by underdeveloped nations to to transition away from fossil fuels. And I actually think doing that is a huge, would go very far to supporting those transitions. There's also reforms that need to happen at the World Bank and the IMF, in terms of restructuring debt, right, and also facilitating investment um, in clean energy, renewable energy in the transition. Um, so I think those are concrete steps in terms of like getting funds to to nations, and not all underdeveloped nations, but a lot of developing nations do in fact have expertise in terms of clean, renewable energy adaptation mitigation, uh, but they don't have the resources to undertake that. So um, I think that that is key. And I also think that us taking countries like the U.S. taking climate change far more seriously and moving far more quickly uh, and robustly will go incredibly far because those nations in the global south know what they're facing. Right. They know climate change firsthand far more directly, often and intimately than we do. Uh, And they're just largely asking us to do our part and sort of clean up our mess in our own situation and fund and pay reparations, essentially, for what we have are causing um, in their own countries. Or audience question, and then I had one more moderator question. Do we have another question from the audience? Yes, I'm sorry, I walked in this direction. Um, uh, sort of bouncing off the previous question, uh, a lot of developing countries and in the global south are also one of the large, some of the largest carbon emitters on the planet. So what? What way should we have this interaction between developed world where carbon emissions are lower, where they're higher, uh, with countries that are recently industrializing and industrialized? Right. Uh, so that we don't like, uh, like we don't decimate their manufacturing prowess or any kind of like support, economic support they get in a globalized world. And how does the OPEC country adapt to this change shift and uh, our shift out of fossil fuel? Yeah, those are both really good questions that I quite honestly am not the expert to ask. Um, I will say that the problem of like decimating recently industrialized the economies and in recently industrialized nations is very real, right? That danger. And I, I'm not an expert, but I have often wondered like, are there ways to facilitate a transition to clean energy that minimizes those risks as much as possible? I don't know. I would like to think that there is, but again, I'm not an expert. 
And as far as OPEC countries, that is a very big question. Um, I think that that doesn't change the fact that we do have to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. I mean, globally, there's no way around that. And so I'll leave that to someone smarter and, and like more experienced to answer that question. Um, but I, I guess I think that we we need to settle it, but we still have to keep moving to reduce the amount of fossil fuels and like keep as much of oil, coal, natural gas, all of it in the ground as possible. So. Yeah. Is there a correct temperature for the planet and how do we decide what that is? Oh, that's a very, I mean, that's a question. That is a question. Um, is there a correct temperature? I don't. As little warming as possible is the correct temperature, right? Like, I think there are certainly ways to adapt, right? And we're going to have to adapt. But ultimately, so much stuff, even we were talking about, like, tourism at dinner, is built around the weather and the seasons, right? And the ecology and the ecosystems that we have, right? And so I think the right temperature is however little warming we can have so that we can preserve as much of that as possible. Um, because I think even I, in my mind, like, if all of that altered the amount of adaptation, it's just, like, Staggering. So I think that that's what I would say. I don't, I'm not going to say two or 1.5, um, just as little as possible, right? I want to see 1.5. I think we crossed that threshold. You know, like that is, if that, if we could stay at 1.5, I mean, that would bring me, but if it was one, which I think we passed that threshold already, so we can't do that, but just as little as possible. That's a long way to just say as little as possible. And then what was the other half? Oh, how do we decide? Nobody. That's that's the scary thing about all this. Ideally, you would have like some like global meeting like in movies where everybody from every country came or I guess the United Nations exists. So you could do it there. Right. And we would all vote. But I mean, that's that's kind of what we tried to do with the Paris Accord. Right. There have been these global accords where we said we're going to stay at this temperature. The problem is they're not binding. So you can say them and then you cannot do them, right? Uh, countries cannot, can, international law is not advanced enough to truly punish people for those things. Um, so there is no one who will decide. Really, this is truly decided by how much action we can get government and industry to undertake and how much change we can stomach and facilitate um, to prevent as much warming as possible and to adapt where we have to adapt, you know, in our own communities. So no one decides. But and at the same time, we all decide, which is a terrible situation. But that's one that's just where we are. <laughs> I love your real talk. And I really <laughs> appreciate that we've had these candid conversations. I think it's super important. Um, the last question we had from students, we do always want to maintain hope. We want to be informed in our hope, correct? We don't want to just be yeah. hopeful without being honest. That's called being delusional. Exactly. So you are incredibly strong and courageous and, and motivated. We are so happy that you have come and shared all this wisdom with us. 
Where do you find hope? That's always an interesting question. People love to ask people who work on climate that. Um, I feel like, do y'all ask people who work in business that? You should ask them that. They need a lot of hope. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to say I don't believe in hope. I've always wanted to be a hopeful person and I've never felt it. Because I always thought hope was like a feeling where you're just like, I think I can, I think I can. I've never had that. I've never had that feeling. Uh, I remember after like losing like the, the Abdul election or whatever, I'd be like, I have to be hopeful. And I would like close my eyes and like clench my fists and clench my butt and be like, it's coming. And nothing. I never got it. Um, so for me, I find hope in the fact that we don't have any other alternative. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to have to live through this. We're all going to have to live through this regardless of what we choose to do or not do. It just is what it is. And um, I can and I know I'm the kind of person who would complain about it regardless. So I can either do something and complain or I can do nothing and quietly stew and and it will still be happening. Right. And I guess I find hope in that is that like we face what we have to face. And um, like I had a kid and a lot of people are thinking about whether or not they want to have children. And I think I get a lot of it from my history, too. Like. There was never a good time in this country to have a black child. But my family did it anyway, and it's meant something I feel like net positive for every generation. So I just think, I guess that's where I get hope is like things just are what they are and you're going to face what you have to face, but you have to face it. So you might as well just do it. And I also think that like even with a really bad, I think it's really important to to be honest about what we're facing. Like we were talking a lot about tipping points and I didn't even know how bad some of the predictions had gotten because I was in a maternity hole. Um, and, and I was like taken aback, but then I also thought like, we have to live through it. Like you just have to do what you have to do. And people have faced famine and war and all sorts of things and still manage to like love one another and love their communities and hold their children. And I don't know, I guess I get hope from that too, which is that humans have like a big capacity to like destroy and be destructive but we also have like an enormous capacity for love and oh I guess I do get hope from a lot look at y'all telling me I have hope I didn't know that um I also am like uh I guess like an amateur systems theorist I don't know a lot of my work is about systems it always has been and something that I love about systems is that Every action that you have in a system has an effect, even if you can't see it. And you never know when you've made enough actions for that system to shift. Often you don't, right? Um, and I feel like that is incredible, right? Like, and there's so many paths in the world and in life that if you do a thing, even if it feels like it doesn't matter, it can have all these reverberations with the people around you, with people seeing you, with people you're in relationship with, and your community. And like, you didn't even mean for that to happen. 
Like you, you assign the essay in this book that an essay that I like struggled to write for this book. And like some of you all have read it. That's wild. I had no idea that could happen. And that happened just because I like wrote something and cried a lot and wrote something. That's incredible, right? Like the world is constantly changing. That's the only thing that you can be assured of is that it won't stay the same whether your capacity to deal with something changes. And so, I don't know, I just think all of that is just like so invigorating because nothing stays the same. And you can be a part of switching that up in so many ways, even if it doesn't feel like that in the moment. And I just think that's so cool. Thanks so much for that wonderful talk. Please join me in thanking Rihanna once again. We have some time now for additional conversation um, in the lobby, so please join us uh, for that. Uh, also, please mark your calendars for February 15th when Alex Tabarak will join us uh, to talk about uh, COVID-19 policy. So that should be another interesting one. Uh, but please join us in the lobby. Thanks so much. <laughs>